This is episode number 248, Plant-Based Juniors with Alex Kasparo and Whitney English. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. There's so many times when my child is, is eating at the table and all I want to do is just be like, eat it. You ate it yesterday and you loved it. What do you, what do you mean you don't want it anymore? Why are we having a tantrum right now? I don't understand. Like, I know how hard this is and I know how sometimes this feels like really complicated. I think if we just sort of take a step back and say, we're just really trying to give our children more ability to decide how much they need and what they need and really trusting them more. You know, things like the clean plate club or, you know, the one bite rule really take away that trust. And the more that our kids learn, they can trust their bodies and trust what they want and what types of foods feel good for them. Ideally, that's going to set them up for a much better relationship with food as, as they continue to get older. If you're new around here, I just wanted to extend a big welcome and don't forget to hit the subscribe button if you like what we're doing here and want to get notifications of a new episode every week. I'm really excited about today's episode because number one, it is personal. I have a 14 month old boy and he has been raised plant-based from the beginning. And I also had a plant-based pregnancy. And in fact, I've been plant-based since 2013. That is a lot of using the word plant-based in a really short period of time. So thanks for bearing with me. Along the way, I've gotten lots of questions. Is it safe to have a plant-based pregnancy? Is it safe to not give your kids animal products? And I've had the luxury of talking to multiple experts in this field, from doctors to registered dietitians to knowing what is an appropriate and well-planned plant-based diet, which is what is considered safe and even healthful by the American Academy of Pediatrics and the same in Canada. You might be wondering how to feed your toddler or baby a plant-based diet. And how do you even communicate around food? Like food is such a sensitive topic these days, the way that we use food to soothe ourselves as adults and all of our habits and our relationships with food start at a very young age. I was really happy when I found Plant-Based Juniors as a resource And you know what? They just came out with a book too. It just so happened that just months after finding them, they have this really fantastic resource. And it literally just came out this week. It's called The Plant-Based Baby and Toddler. It has all of the information you need about the health benefits of raising a child plant-based, the potential downsides of feeding children animal products, and a whole wealth of meal plans and recipes that are great for the whole family. And on a side note with those recipes, whenever you have a toddler or a baby, you don't really have time to cook. So these recipes are simple and easy to make, and I highly recommend it. So let's talk about Whitney English and Alex Casparo. They are both registered dietitians, certified personal trainers, and moms who founded Plant-Based Juniors. Together, they created a community, an incredible resource for families who want to raise their kids with a mostly plant-based diet. And their messaging, very similar to mine, is that Eating more fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains, eating more that way is going to give you health benefits. And I don't believe that you should tell people that they need to do things 100% a certain way. And Alex and Whitney are the same. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, well, I don't really want to go plant-based, but 
geez, I wish my kid would eat more broccoli. I wish I could get my kids to eat more vegetables or to eat something a little bit healthier. How do I deal with picky eating? How do I introduce these foods so that they develop a palate for them? Then this podcast is for you. All of their nutritional advice is based on evidence-based nutrition, just like all of the other plant-based podcasts that you might have heard on the show. Whitney and Alex empower parents to make the best nutrition decisions for their family. And not only is it safe to feed your children a plant-based diet, but there are many positive short-term and long-term health benefits. Studies show that plant-based children have a much lower risk of obesity, have lower levels of inflammatory signaling molecules, and we know that reducing inflammation is a good thing. And they learn to love fruits and vegetables from an early age. In fact, the palate of a baby begins with what the pregnant mother eats. And especially when you start introducing foods to them when they are six months old, depending on what your um, thoughts are around when to introduce food, that actually helps develop their palate to learn to really actually enjoy fruits and vegetables. Plant-based children are also exposed to much fewer environmental toxins typically found in animal tissue. And an unexpected finding, it might even be beneficial for cognitive development. And that makes sense to me. We are not machines. This is not reductionist. So if you treat the body as a whole well, then everything is going to benefit. And those facts came from their book. Plant-Based Juniors is for parents who wish to create any type of dietary environment at home, whether it's vegan, vegetarian, flexitarian, or more. And focusing on science, Plant-Based Juniors offers recipes, meal planning tips, kitchen hacks, supplement guides. They have so many free resources on their website. So even if you don't want to get their book, they have all of these free downloads that I personally have found benefit from. They make it super easy to just help you add more plant-based options into the diet. And as I mentioned before, this podcast isn't just about nutritional advice and helping kids eat more fruits, veggies, and legumes. It's about how we communicate with our kids about food, how we talk about treats and how we reward our kids and how we label food and so much more. I found that part particularly fascinating, the psychology of food, because I've spent so much time studying the nutritional benefits of eating a plant-based diet, but I was curious, how do I start talking about food to my son? Today, you're going to learn some amazing things like the health benefits of feeding children a plant-based diets, how to get your kids to eat healthy, especially those who are picky eaters, getting the right amount of fat in the diet, especially for toddlers, how to reward your kids without using food, and how to create structure around eating. I hope that you enjoy this episode and make sure that you check out Plant-Based Juniors. Go to plantbasedjuniors.com. If you're enjoying this podcast and want to support my work, number one, don't forget to hit subscribe and leave us a review. That helps other people find this information. And the biggest challenge in my line of work is making sure that people just know that you're out there. So don't keep me a secret from your friends. Tell them about this show. Send them your favorite episode. And it's very much appreciated. Number two, we have an awesome Patreon account at patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show where I am providing exclusive access to things like live streams. I just recently posted a blog post on all of my best tips on self-talk. There's a lot of resources there to help you be better every day that follow the theme of this show. And for as little as four bucks a month, that's like what you'd pay for one coffee It makes a big difference to support my team. I have Roma, who is my incredible audio engineer. And I have Rebecca, who wears multiple hats in my business and is helping me ensure that the show notes are really awesome and that everything is uploaded on time. I also have a free weekly newsletter that comes out every single Monday. 
It's all about motivation and mindset. And it also has the podcast episode of the week. So you don't miss anything. So make sure you subscribe to that. I spend a lot of time working on it, doing research for those articles. And there's been amazing feedback from people. Thank you so much for your messages. I love hearing from you. And while we're on the topic of health, have you heard of Groovy? Groovy is a non-alcoholic beverage company. And while I was pregnant, I started dabbling in this world of non-alcoholic craft beer. And I actually wrote a review on a bunch of different beers that I had tried and was pleasantly surprised that there was more to life than just, you know, non-alcoholic Budweiser, or non-alcoholic Heineken. There's some pr- pretty great things out there. And I recently found Groovy and they not only make non-alcoholic craft beer, but they also have non-alcoholic bubbly. They have Prosecco, which they call No Secco, and they have Sparkling Rosé. And I have dramatically cut back on my drinking. As a pregnant person, you obviously aren't supposed to drink, and I did not drink. But coming out of that, I decided that I wanted to reduce the amount of alcohol that I'm drinking. And while I still really enjoy a nice glass of red wine or a margarita here and there, my regular is reaching for these non-alcoholic beverages. And my favorite right now with Groovy is their non-alcoholic pale ale. And I like that because I can drink it after a ride. Like before, I just would never even want to drink a beer after a ride because I'm a lightweight and I didn't want to feel bad the rest of the day. So now I can just sit on my patio, enjoy this pale ale. If you want to try it too, go to getgroovy.com. And there is a link in the show notes to get 10% off. All right. I am very excited to introduce you to the Plant-Based Juniors. Alex and Whitney, welcome to the show. Thanks Thank for, having, for us. having us. Yeah, you guys both have little kids as well. So we we're just saying how it's a miracle that this happened, that we were able to all get together. <laughs> yeah, if we make it through this podcast without somebody's child screaming, it's going to be a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And speaking of children, you guys have an incredible book coming out. It will be out by the time this is released. And how did you find the time to write a book when you have little kids? Yeah, I mean, well, <laughs> lots of early mornings and, and late nights, but, um, you know, really we, I feel like we had the drive to do this, you know, we really set out to create the book that Whitney and I were both looking for when we were pregnant with our, our first kids or our sons and just couldn't find out there on the market. You know, we felt like everything that was geared towards plant-based or predominantly plant-based raising kids was either saying, Hey, you know, you don't have to worry about anything. The plants kind of take care of themselves. Or it was saying, you can't do this. It's harmful for your baby. They have to have meat to thrive. And we just felt like, ah, that's not what the evidence says. So we really wanted to create something that we felt like we, we wanted, and that hopefully will help a lot of parents. Like Alex said, it, it kind of wrote itself. It, it, this all started when Alex was, had a newborn Vander and mm-hmm. I was pregnant and we had been friends for a while through the blogging community. We just started DMing each other, asking questions like, what's the answer to this? Where did you find this? And we both found that we were having to dig deep into the research and then share the, the information with each other. And so we were kind of like learning and writing it out as we went. And we're like, let's put this all together and, and, and help some people. <laughs> Yeah. And plant-based pregnancy. I remember when I was pregnant as well, I was just looking for information and like people are asking me for information and I'm just so thankful for everything that you guys have put out. And now that my son is, you know, 13 months, people are asking me like, what are you feeding him? And then I could just push them your way. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. So, um, 
a lot of different countries say different things about eating plant-based for kids. And something I thought was really interesting was a friend of mine in Germany, she was pregnant after me and she said the doctors in her country and her country says it's not safe to feed children plant-based diets and also plant-based pregnancy is not safe. And that's not the case in North America. So in North America, what do they say? And like, what is a well-planned plant-based diet? Yeah, so the majority of health organizations worldwide, I guess except for Germany, although I'd have to review that statement again because I I feel like there were some caveats to that. It wasn't just a blanket statement that plant-based diets aren't safe. The majority say that they're safe and likely beneficial for all stages of the life cycle. A key word in, in one of these statements from the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics specifically is appropriately planned. So as long as all of the nutrients are being accounted for in the diet, either through food or supplements, a plant-based diet, vegan, vegetarian, flexitarian, whatever, is perfectly safe from pregnancy through infancy, toddlerhood, and all the way through old age. The American Academy of Pediatrics also has this standpoint, as does the Canadian Pediatric Society, the American Pregnancy Association, and, and many, many other organizations. And one thing I'll sort of say too, is I feel like a lot of times as, as plant-based parents, we feel like we have to be on the defense to say like, oh, well, you know, what we're doing is so radical. Well, it's not like the standard Western diet is promoting all of these health benefits either. Right. I mean, the top five, you know, killers of, of, of disease in the United States, at least are all driven by lifestyle choices. And so when we sort of step back and say, okay, we know that there are so many of these of these chronic disease issues. So many of them start in early childhood. We also know that the vast majority of all Americans, specifically including kids, are only getting about one out of ten, or one of ten of us are getting enough of the recommended amounts of produce each day. You know, to say that we want to feed our kids a more plant-based or a plant-rich diet really doesn't need to be this this crazy thing. You know, we're just sort of stepping back and saying, okay, what do we know from the literature is you know the the best sources of, of food that we can offer, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, whole grains, and that's really the cornerstone of of our diet. And uh, one last thing I'll say too is that we're very inclusive, so we feel like. Every bit of this plant-based, you know, pattern is beneficial and helpful. And so if you're listening to this and you're like, well, I, I, you know, perhaps don't want to go all the way and be plant exclusive. That's okay. You know, we, we just know that where we're sort of starting from and what the average child's, you know, diet looks like really isn't the picture of health. And the more that we can push more plants on the plate, we feel like it is just beneficial for, for so many reasons. Yeah. Yeah, some scary stats that we're seeing is about 14% of preschoolers now are can be designated as obese, while we've got lifestyle diseases like type 2 diabetes, which typically comes on later in life, we've seen a 30% increase in children as young as 10. Wow. Yeah, so the health benefits of eating a plant-based diet isn't only for adults. It, it, the, the health benefits start in childhood and extend later into life. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and, and we and we see that in the research too. We see that plant-based kids eat more fruits and vegetables, mm-hmm. which is then going to translate to more positive eating habits later in life. They typically have lower cholesterol levels. They typically have healthier body weights. Some research has even shown lower levels of inflammatory markers in the bloodstream. They have less exposure to environmental contaminants because we're eating foods that are lower on the food chain. So there's immense benefits that we see in children, which, which makes sense given the benefits that we see from plant-based diets in adults. And Alex, were you going to say something? Just a hundred percent agree with all of that. 
One other thing I I will add to is that we are also changing the palate and setting up these taste preferences as kids get older. You know, we know that all of these, these things happen in older adulthood. And if we can sort of, sort of reframe that and say, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if we could introduce these foods so much earlier in life, have them be part of the, you know, the, the normal diet, sort of the, the culture that these kids grow up with what's that going to look like in, you know, 20, 30 years when they do enter into adulthood, hopefully we're going to see a drastic decrease of these lifestyle diseases. Yes. And I, I think it's safe to say that everyone wants their kids to be healthy. And most people would agree that eating more plants is healthy. And whether you're on the spectrum of hundred percent or, Hey, I just want my kid to maybe eat some broccoli. That's going to be beneficial across the board. So my question that comes after this is, how do you do that? Because I've had a lot of people ask me, you know, I see pictures of your son eating like beans and and greens and all these things. Like, how are you doing that? My kid won't eat that. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's not nutrition unless it's eaten, right? I mean, we can offer these foods all day long, but you're right. If our kids are not actually eating these foods, there's only so much of a benefit. One thing I will say is that we, we do know that the earlier we start with exposure, the higher acceptance is going to be. So for example, if we're starting for these, these foods and at six months, seven months, eight months, even at a year, and kids are starting to understand that this is what food is, this is their first exposure to these foods, they're likely going to have higher acceptances. Other things that increase acceptance are being around these kind of foods more often. It doesn't necessarily have to be eating them, but even just going to the grocery store and picking them out, helping you prepare the foods, seeing you eat them or seeing other siblings eat them or seeing other adult or caregivers eat them. You know, all of these things sort of start to reinforce the idea that, oh yes, this is the food that is sort of normal to my home and normal to my family. And therefore there's not these weird things. Other things that can really help is also variety. Right. So perhaps your child doesn't like steamed broccoli, but they love it roasted or they love it, you know, tossed in with their favorite pasta sauce. You know, there's a lot of ways that you can try to introduce these foods. And and the first try might not be it. Uh, It takes dozens and dozens sometimes of times to introduce these foods before kids accept them. And this is true of all all foods, not just plant-based foods. Plant-based foods, especially certain things like vegetables tend to be a little bit more bitter and therefore it's sort of a, a little bit of a harder hurdle, just the way that we're naturally programmed to prefer more sweeter tastes. But it doesn't mean all is lost. You know, the, the more that you can introduce these foods, the more often and without pressure uh, is what the research is sort of the, the guiding principles behind acceptance. And, and the one last thing I'll sort of say is that if you're listening to this and you're like, oh shoot, my kid is four, you know, he's not going to eat any of these foods. It's, it's never too late to start, whether your kid is, you know, six months or 16, the more that we can start to make these foods part of the family meal. And also know it may take some time and other foods might have easier acceptance levels than others. You know, I think as our job as parents is to offer these foods and let our kids really sort of decide how much they want to eat, if they want to eat them and allow them to explore at their own pace. Yeah, I definitely want to get in later to talk about communication around food because that's a big mm-hmm. part of your book. And I thought I found that incredibly valuable. So for babies and, and toddlers who are going to eat plant-based, how do you actually know what to give them? Because a lot of people are interested in becoming adult plant-based eaters and there's a lot of confusion as to, well, how do, what do I even feed myself? So what are your guidelines that you recommend to people on how they should arrange their plate for their kids? 
Yeah, so to answer this question, Alex and I actually developed a, a visual model for planning the plate for parents to make it easier. And we call this the PB3 plate. So we divide the plate into three main categories, fruits and vegetables, grains and starches, and legumes, nuts, and seeds. And then within each of these main categories, we've got uh, subcategories, which basically cover all of your nutrients. So things like iron, fat, vitamin C, carotenoids, calcium. And the idea is that if you can, as often as possible, fill your plate with, with one item from each of these main categories, and then also optimize fat, which is in the middle of the plate, then you're likely to cover all of their, or the majority of their nutrient needs, aside from what they need to get from supplements. And Alex and I, we have this available on our website for a free download. And it's also a tear out from the book so that you can put it right there on your refrigerator. And it takes the guesswork out of planning. So a typical meal might go something like this. I have some tofu. So I'm going to put that in the legumes, nuts, and seeds category. What can I add to this plate to complement that and to meet the other categories? Well, let's see, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do some marinara sauce. That's going to get me into the fruits and vegetables category and I'll serve it on some whole grain pasta. Now I've got a tofu marinara with pasta and I met all of the categories right there. Yeah. And I think adults can use this for themselves too, right? Absolutely. So we use this plate for all ages. You may have seen plate models before if we're talking about like the USDA my plate, or I believe Stan uh, Harvard has, has a plate mm -hmm. that they created as well. Plate mo models are just very convenient for people to wrap their head around. But the difference between some of those plates and our plate, well, one big difference is, is the way we broke it up. So we broke ours up into thirds, whereas on a lot of other plates, you'll see half the plate is fruits and vegetables. We designate just a third, specifically on a child's plate, to reflect the fact that a plant-based diet is very low in fat. And a lot of plants are a lot lower in calories than typical omnivorous foods. So while fruits and vegetables are amazing and we want kids eating a lot of them, if they get too much from that category, they might miss out on some vital nutrients that are in the other categories because fruits and vegetables are very fiber rich and they can fill you up really quickly. While again, like I said, being low in some of those nutrients like calories and fat that babies really need. Yeah. So I heard you say the other categories are like a legume or a tofu and then a grain category. So yes. people listening might think, okay, my, my kid needs more fat. How much fat do they need? And how do I know if they're getting enough fat? Yeah. So older infants and toddlers really need about 35 to 40% of calories from fat and compared to even a, you know, traditional plant-based diet that might be lower, maybe 20, 25% in fat, this is going to be a much significant amount. A uh, few things that we recommend is one, putting fat at the center, like Whitney said. So what that means is always trying to figure out, are you offering at least one fat source that can be solid foods, things like avocado, things like nuts, nut butters, seeds. It can, it can also be, and it should be cooking with oils. So we don't see any reason to not cook with healthy plant oils, like an olive oil for our kids, just because they do need so much of that fat and, and plant foods are lower in it. And so we really need to make sure that we are offering these plant rich foods, these fat rich foods. Fat also helps the absorption of fat soluble nutrients. So um, that vitamin A that that is really important in a plant based diet that's found in the fruits and vegetables. Pairing it with a fat can make sure that you're getting enough of it actually absorbed into your body. Yeah, and what are some other oils that are healthy? Because people might not know what what is a healthy oil. 
Sure. So, I mean, our favorite oils are probably olive oil and avocado oil, but contrary to what you may hear, there really isn't evidence out there showing that other seed oils are harmful to health. It's actually the exact opposite, according to the American Heart Association and just the bulk of the literature that's out there. Eating plant oils can actually lower your levels of harmful cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and raise the uh, so-called good cholesterol HDL in your body. Yeah. And there's a lot of debate. Sometimes you'll see like in the, in the adult plant-based nutrition section around things like coconut oil, but breast milk, for example, is actually fairly high in saturated fat. And so we know that kids need all types of fats, especially for developing brains. And so we, even then too, we'll, you know, sometimes cook with coconut oil or coconut milk just to ensure that we are providing as much fat as possible. A lot of times when we look at, you know, stories or case studies of, of kids who are not thriving on a vegan diet, a lot of times it's related to not getting enough calories, but also not getting enough fat. Yeah. And you just transitioned beautifully into what I wanted to ask next is how many calories do kids need? Because I know that that varies. And how do you know if they're getting enough? Because I know that that's a concern. Yeah. So we, we actually don't recommend parents necessarily count calories for their kids just because it can feel really nuanced and it can sort of vary so much from day to day. The big thing that we want to focus on is growth. So when your child goes to their pediatrician and their, their weight and their, you know, their height is measured, we want to ensure that they are growing according to their growth chart. So what that means is that if your child perhaps is at a 20% on their growth chart, but stays sort of, you know, in a similar range as they get older, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily underweight, even though they're less than 50%. That means they're growing according to their body's needs. The same is true with a child who is 80, 90th percentile does not necessarily mean that we need to be focused on, you know, making them, them lose weight or any kind of dietary things when it comes to kids, as long as they're going according to their growth chart. Some kids are smaller, some kids are bigger, uh, but we, you know, if there's any sort of jump in the growth chart, if a child is, is decreasing in percentiles or increased in percentiles, that's really, when we want to sort of step back and focus and figure out, you know, what's going on in the diet. And then from there, we may recommend, okay, you know, let's track certain nutrients to ensure that we're either getting enough. Two problems with counting calories too is one that it's it's highly inaccurate. You know, with these formulas to estimate or eat or even what the average requirements are are just estimates. Every child is so different based on their activity level, their their unique characteristics that even trying to estimate it is not going to be accurate. But secondly, when you start obsessing about calories, just like I think many adults have probably found in their own life, that starts to guide your, your food intake choices mm -hmm. and your behaviors around food. So if a parent starts to worry like, oh my gosh, you know, I, I calculated he's only eating 600 or 700 calories, that's going to change the way you start parenting that child, right? You're going to start trying to pressure them into eating more, which I don't know if we're going to get into this a little bit more later, but, but pressuring kids actually leads to the complete opposite of what you're trying to achieve. Kids end up eating less when they're pressured to eat more food. So it's really best to kind of take a step back, let your child use their innate hunger and fullness cues to drive their eating behaviors and try not to obsess about the numbers. And that's, again, another reason why we really like the plate model is instead of trying to constantly count up how many grams of each nutrient, we're instead doing our job as the parent. We're saying, we're filling your plate with these nutritious options, and we're going to let you uh, lead the way and, and decide what you want to eat and how much you need to eat. 
Yeah. And conversely too, you know, perhaps a parent could look at that calorie amount and be like, my child's getting too much and then work to drastically decrease that or even decrease that. And we don't recommend weight loss diets for, for any child, regardless of their, their weight. Yeah. I'm just smiling to myself because everybody's kid has a different appetite. Like you guys have said, Mm -hmm. and my son, we're just amazed how much he eats. Like he'll eat adult size portions. And we, we ask like, should we cut him off? Like, is he going to get too full? But no, we, we've just, we just let him eat until he's done. And it's just really, really crazy to think a little person can eat that much. (laughs) It really is. And it's, it's crazy to think how far we get from, what we're born to do, which is regulate our own appetite. You know, as adults, we've been so programmed over the years by diet culture, by the media to think that somehow we need to step in and manipulate these things. When really, if we just let nature take its course, we would probably all be nourishing ourselves properly. Yeah. And babies are born to do this. Yeah. Not to get too far off tangent, but like the intuitive eating thing, like whenever you're eating lots of processed foods, like as an adult, it's really hard to eat intuitively whenever you're all the chemicals in your brain are just screaming at you like more of this, more of that. But if you're feeding kids a whole foods plant-based diet or, or you know, even a halfway whole foods plant-based diet, they're going to be able to listen to that intuition more and not be driven by these chemicals put in foods. Exactly. And we don't want to shame parents for serving processed or ultra processed foods because, hey, we've all been there. We're busy parents, but Mm -hmm. you're right. You know, the more you stick to these types of foods, the more they're going to be a normal part of the diet, the more they're going to be able to listen to their bodies. And this is one of the reasons actually that we, along with the American Academy of Pediatrics recommend that you limit sugar and salt before the age of two, because this is when kids taste buds are really beginning to, to form and develop flavor preferences. And we really don't want these man-made highly processed flavors to start uh, shaping the the types of foods that they they like to eat, we want them to have a preference for f- flavors that naturally exist in foods. Yeah. So, how do you eventually introduce sweets and treats? Oh man, you know we we dedicated an entire chapter, almost entire chapter in our book to this because there is just so much nuance, and and really, it's going to come down to the family and you know what that what that structure restriction looks like one thing that we we know from the research is that restriction tends to tends to breed uh, wanting more so if we think about you know any time that perhaps we're restricted or told no suddenly that item that we wanted becomes even more exciting and so when we tell our kids constantly that they can't have these things or we restrict them or tell them how you know bad x y and z is it makes the food even more taboo, even more sort of sacred. And so the likelihood is that when they finally do get to enjoy this sweet or this treat, they're likely going to go crazy and they're going to overboard or perhaps even binge. And so we want to provide sweets in a way that tells our kids, hey, this food isn't necessarily any more special than any of the other kid eat food that you've been given because it really takes it off that pedestal, it just becomes sort of another food that that's offered. A few ways you can do this. So one is the idea that you offer it without a lot of fanfare. Right. So sometimes, you know, with with certain desserts or treats, especially if they're not offered very often, parents will sometimes make a really big deal out of them, you know, like, oh, my gosh, we're going to have this tonight. How exciting is this making it this big thing? And and I get that, you know, trust me, I'm a parent. I, I make big deals out of, you know, lots of things. But when we do that around treats, especially it makes the experience feel even more heightened. 
and it makes it feel like this is so much different of an experience than I have with broccoli or mom definitely didn't get this crazy about mango this morning at breakfast. You know, it just becomes this, this thing. And so the more that we can sort of neutralize it and just sort of say like, Hey, we're going to have dessert tonight. Um, would you like some and, and sort of offer it like we would any other food really helps to take sort of that, that pressure off. And then the other thing that we like to recommend once kids are a little bit older is allowing them occasionally to eat as much as they want. And that's because like Whitney said earlier, that that really helps that regulation. You know, it's kids don't need these nutrition lessons. They don't need to hear how terrible sugar is for them or, you know, all the things that, that too much sugar can cause in the diet. That's a really tricky message for a four-year-old or a five-year-old, but if they're allowed to eat three pieces of birthday cake one day and sort of have that learned experience that like, (laughs) oh, wow. And we kind of shepherd them through that. Like you didn't feel so good. Your tummy kind of hurt. Like that's actually a really good way to sort of learn how much food you can handle and what different kinds of foods feel like in your body. In general, we say, you know, as long as you can hold out the better, but once you do start to introduce treats, you know, introducing them in a, in a responsible way, in a way that makes your child not feel like they can't have these things or the way that makes them feel like, you know, they're allowed to have them. And it's not this, this big pressure filled moment. And then to add to that, that doesn't mean that you have to bring foods that you as a family don't eat into the house. So, you know, Alex and I don't drink soda, so we're not going to go out and, and buy a high fructose corn syrup loaded soda just so that our child can be exposed to it. It's just to say that when they, we do encounter these things later in life, we're approaching them in, in the way that Alex described in this nonchalant way of not putting them in, on a pedestal. And what about when people reward their kids with food? Like if you do this, you can get an ice cream. Um, Reading your book has been really helpful for me because I haven't even thought about any of these things yet. So I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, we definitely recommend against using food of any kind, whether it be a treat or anything else as a reward, because again, that's putting the food up on a pedestal that's making it a highly sought after a special thing instead of just a food that has equal value in the diet as everything else. And at the same time, by making these foods more desirable, we're also saying that other foods that we were trying to encourage you to eat that we don't offer on once in a while or use as a treat aren't as good. So now they start to look at, at fresh fruits and vegetables, perhaps in a negative light, if, if we're offering these as a bonus. You can also, by doing so, get food tied up in emotions, you know? So if we're always associating uh, success or celebration with, with sweet foods, then that really gets tied up into a kid's value system of what they're supposed to do when they're feeling good or conversely, when they're feeling bad, you know, you get hurt. Oh, okay. We're going to go get some ice cream because of that, you know, trying to cheer, cheer kids up by giving them treats also can then start to build this association where whenever we're not feeling good emotionally, we're trying to fill that void with food. Yeah. The the more that we can unlink the better, right? So we want to shift away from saying, if you eat this, you get this, if this happens, then you get this, you know, just letting the conversation that the the food naturally happens. So for example, if we say, oh, if you eat all your broccoli tonight, you get ice cream. Then we're consistently learning that broccoli is more of a punishment food. I have to sort of go through this, this experience or to get the thing I really want, which is the ice cream. And so we just sort of decide in our head or decide, you know, ahead of time, we're going to have ice cream tonight, regardless of how much broccoli is eaten, ice cream still gets offered. So kids don't learn to link these things either through, you know, if then things, or like Whitney said too, even emotions. 
So if someone listening is like, okay, yeah, I don't think I should reward my kids with food, but I reward myself with food. And maybe that was learned at a young age as well. How should I reward my kids? And then you can reward them. We, we would refrain from rewarding with food as much as you can. That's not to say that you can't every now and then have a really fun celebration with food. But what we want to do is unlearn this sort of like, you know, linked behavior, right? So like you said before, you know, when I, I used to work a lot with eating disorders before I get into pediatrics and, you know, so, so much of that, that treatment was unlearning those linked behaviors, you know, not having so much associations. And so if we can start that in childhood where they don't constantly have to sort of have these, these foods as reward systems, it really helps as we get older to have these healthy relationships with food and just being able to, you know, experience this, this sadness or this happiness, whatever the emotion is, and then allowing food to be the next thing if we want it to be, but not constantly having it to be, to be a linked experience. So, I mean, it could be something as simple, even if you say, oh, you know, you did well on X, Y, Z, we're going to, we're going to go out to dinner to celebrate. That could be an option of something to celebrate versus it being a specific food that's being rewarded or other family experiences. You know, now we're going to all have a family game night. Now we're going to have a dance party. Now we're going to go, go on your favorite hike this weekend. You know, there's, there's a million different things that you can use as a reward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks for those examples. (laughs) Yeah. And communication around food is something that is like it's hard to be intentional about it when it's been beat into you from a young age. And you guys talked about how parenting styles play into how you talk about food and creating structure around eating. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. So research has shown that different parenting styles can lead to different results and different responses in children. The main one that we talk about that we really want to avoid is the authoritarian parent. And that's really the parent that's putting pressure on kids, mostly negative pressure saying that you you have to eat this. That's again, like what Alex said, you have to eat your broccoli or you're not going to get dessert. You have to eat this or you can't leave the table being very specific about the types of foods that kids can and cannot eat. So that is a restrictive type of parenting that often leads to, again, what we said, the opposite of what you're trying to achieve by trying to force kids to eat certain things. They eat less by trying to prevent them from eating certain things. They often eat more. So the type of parenting that we want to strive for is called authoritative. And that's all, that's really a collaborative process where we're guiding the way for children, but we're also giving them room to make their own decisions. And we're really avoiding that kind of restrictive parenting behavior. One tool that Alex and I like to employ in order to be more authoritative parents is, is Ellen Satter's division of responsibility. Ellen Satter is a, a dietitian and she, she came up with this model that really designates what parents' role in feeding is and what children's role is. And this helps to take that pressure and restrictiveness out of, out of the feeding equation. And so it says that parents' role is to determine the what of eating, the where, and the when. So it's our, our job to say, this is what we're having for dinner tonight, and this is the time, and this is where we'll be eating. And then it's your child's job to sit there and decide whether or not they want to eat at all, and then how much they want to eat. And by not falling prey to the common parental desire to direct what your kids eat and how much they eat, you are giving your child the ability to then listen to their innate hunger and fullness cues. And this doesn't have to be, you know, perfection either, right? I mean, you know, Whitney and I can be, uh, there are definitely, 
I just want parents to hear this and, and know that like, it's hard, right? Gosh, there are so many times when my child is, is eating at the table and all I want to do is just be like, eat it. You ate it yesterday and you loved it. What do you, what do you mean? You don't want it anymore. Why are we having a tantrum right now? I don't understand. Like, I know how hard this is. And I know how sometimes this feels like really complicated. I think if we just sort of take a step back and say, we're just really trying to give our children more ability to decide how much they need and what they need and really trusting them more, you know, things like the clean plate club or, you know, the one bite rule really take away that trust. And the more that our kids learn, they can trust their bodies and trust what they want and what types of foods feel good for them. Ideally, that's going to set them up for a much better relationship with food as, as they continue to get older. And how about structured times and, and snacking and things like that? Yeah. So the reason that we're big fans of this idea of flexible structure, and that's sort of this idea that, you know, kids know when food is going to be there. So for instance, if we offer, let's say uh, pasta and strawberries and broccoli for lunch that day, and our child decides to only eat strawberries, I think a lot of parents would look at that and think, oh my gosh, they're going to be hungry. They're not getting enough protein. I need to offer something else. And maybe they don't necessarily want to be a short order cook, but I just feel like strawberries can't be enough. I'm going to have to do that. Knowing that you are going to offer a snack in two hours, I think really gives a, the parent sort of that like aha to say, okay, I know my child is going to eat again. Even if they only ate strawberries for lunch, it's okay because they're never going to get, you know, overly, overly hungry. I know I'm going to be able to provide food again and having it be a reliable thing that the child also knows too, as part of that structure also gives them the trust to say, I don't have to either overeat right now. I don't have to necessarily undereat. I know that food is going to be coming again and in regular intervals because that's what always happens. And we know food is going to come again and come often it really frees our child up from feeling they have to overeat because they don't know when food's going to come again. It's really a safety thing, but it also helps them to say, okay, yeah, I'm only going to eat what I want to eat at this meal. And I know when I'm hungry again, I'm likely going to have food offered in that time window. Yeah. That's such a great example. <laughs> so what, and you guys talked a lot about not assigning labels to food as good or bad. What happens if you have an oops and you accidentally do it? How do you backpedal from that? I mean, just go on. There are times, I mean, it, yeah. I mean, listen, we're, that's why I say too, none of us are perfect, right? I mean, there are things I say sometimes and I'm like, ah, it's probably shouldn't have said that that way. Or, you know, I, I, whatever it, we, there doesn't have to be this perfection. I think sometimes if we just know, like, what do we do most often? Right. I think that's, that's really what's going to be, be most helpful to our kids. I don't think that we need to go back and sort of have a, have a lesson in that just, you know, for next time, move on. Yeah, honestly, and the more you kind of harp on and dwell on something that you did wrong, the more it's going to stick out in your child's mind. And I think we see that in all aspects of different parenting and parenting advice is that you really want to minimize the amount of attention you, you put on a situation if it's that negative, because the more you dwell on it, the more they're going to be thinking about it. They're like, wait a minute, she said that food was bad. And then she said it wasn't bad. And then she said, I shouldn't be thinking about Foods is good as good and bad. And then that's going to stay in their mind versus if you kind of slip up and you, you do it right the next time. Yeah. And the reason we've really tried to shy away from all these labels is, you know, like I said before, as adults, we might be able to better conceptualize this idea of what foods are sort of, you know, healthier for our bodies and what aren't, but 
that's a lot for a little kid and they don't need to know, you know, if they sort of just see that these are the foods that are offered most often with our, with our family, then they sort of inherently know that, oh yes, this is the foods I like. I, I sort of understand how they make me feel. If we're constantly saying, Ooh, you shouldn't eat that. That's bad. Or, Oh, you're going to get sick. If you eat that, that's just a lot of negative messages that are really hard for a younger child to understand. Like, well, what do you mean I'm bad if I eat that? Or what do you mean that's bad for me? Is it going to harm me? Is it going to hurt me? And so the more that we can refrain from really labeling these things, the, the better we set our kids up to understand how those foods feel on their own and really letting them have their own experiences. And I'm guessing that this continues on into like if a kid is going to their friend's house and their friend is in the, and the, your kid doesn't eat any animal products, but they go to their friend's house and they have like chicken for dinner or Nana's coming over and Nana doesn't want to eat plant-based or Nana gives sugar or all these different things. If there's none of these like labels around it, then maybe it, it's not such a big deal. Exactly. And that can really vary from family to family. You know, mm-hmm. Alex and I, we, we don't eat meat and we're, we, probably if we're present or are not going to have our children eat it as well, but we're a little bit more lax about things like, like dairy and, and eggs, you know, if they go to a birthday party and that happens to be in the food or they go to grandma's house, like you said, and she, and she serves it. So it's really a case by case basis, depending on what your, your family is comfortable with. Yeah. And, and there's, there's a lot of nuance here too, right? So when we look at the the literature, especially when it comes to sort of veganism and, and labels and, and sort of further down when it looks at like eating disorder risk, a lot of it is related to intention. So if we say things like, you know, well, we don't see chicken as a food, then not restricting it doesn't feel like it's this taboo because or restricting it doesn't feel like it's a taboo because it's not food either, right? It's like saying, oh, I'm not going to go and eat this other animal that isn't an option. So we wouldn't even make it this like restrictive thing. But I will caveat that by saying, if your child is around individuals who are eating a lot of animal-based foods, perhaps it's a partner, perhaps it's older siblings, perhaps it's a caretaker, and they're very aware of it, it is going to get harder as your child gets older and gets introduced to these foods to have to have those conversations. And, and you know, we're not going to tell any parent what is right and wrong, because again, there's a lot of belief systems in there and a lot of nuance and what's going to work best for each individual family. But just know that those conversations and those sort of, you know, battles of, of, of what is considered food and what isn't is going to be harder the more your child is around them and sees other people eating them in front of them. Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out later. I think it's just such an interesting piece of just it's cognitive dissonance that in all the kids books, it's like the animals are your friends. And, and then all of a sudden, like they're eating the animals. And where does that switch happen? And yeah, it's just super interesting. Yeah, it's we have a lot of like, you know, those word books that have the different things. And you'll hear my son, he's like, and tofu hot dogs and tofu burgers and tofu chicken. I'm like, yeah, because I don't know what else to say. Like, you know, the word underneath it is like chicken. And I'm like, but two pages back was the chicken. And the chicken did not look like that because the chicken was cute and it had feathers. And now all of a sudden it's like a drumstick. So 
We're just going to call it tofu chicken. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, listen, it's, this is tricky. You know, this is not necessarily a, a really black and white issue. There's, there's a lot of gray area depending on, on, you know, your family and how this looks and, and who's present and, you know, who's taking care of your child and, and all of these things. But um, we try to provide some framework for these discussions and conversations in the book, but we also know that there, there is a lot of, of gray area here and really sort of doing what's right for you. And also know that might change. You know, we have parents who perhaps have have one belief when their child is two or three, but let's say the child is now six or seven and is going to friends' houses and wants things different. You know, you you may have to evolve based on what your child is asking for too. So I want to take the last uh, few minutes just to talk about some more specific nutritional questions. I wanted this podcast to be something that was, even for people who aren't really that interested in eating plant-based, I wanted there to be actionable takeaways, which there have been on just how to go around communicating around food and how to just go around thinking about food. So you mentioned tofu chicken, tofu, and a lot of people are worried about soy products. Can you talk about soy products for children? Sure. Yeah. Soy gets such a bad rap, whether it be for children or for adults. But when you really dive into the research, you see that soy is not only not harmful, it's actually very likely beneficial. So first of all, there's there's research showing that kids who were fed soy formula as babies compared to kids that were fed cow's milk formula as babies 25, 30 years later, they had no differences in reproductive or growth parameters, which really shows us that Soy is perfectly safer in early in early age. I mean, because kids who are having soy formula are getting a ton of soy at a very early age. And if there was really any reproductive issues, any issues with hormones, we would see those effects, especially in a follow-up study 25, 30 years later. But as I said, it's actually maybe the opposite. We've seen some research that shows that women who start consuming soy products early in childhood, those with a higher intake have lower rates of breast cancer. And we see that in adults as well. Adults with a high intake of soy typically have lower rates of hormone dependent cancers like breast cancer and prostate cancer, but that risk is further reduced in some of these studies when the soy consumption began earlier in life. And, and soy is so rich in so many nutrients that we want to see on a plant-based diet, right? It's got choline. It's one of the highest sources of choline on a plant-based diet. It's really rich in lysine, which can be a more limiting amino acid. It's got, of course, protein. It's got healthy fats. It's got fiber. It's got iron. It's got calcium. I mean, it's, it's really such a nutritious food. There's a reason it's been around for thousands and thousands of years. And that so many, especially traditional Asian diets are sort of centered around it. So it's a very healthful food. Do not have to worry about giving it to your child. Whitney and I give it to our children often, and we see no reason to, to not. Yeah, we get asked a lot about how many servings of soy a day is safe. And we would say that there's no specific limit, but we offer it probably two to three times a day. Yeah. And, and the reason you wouldn't want to necessarily give high amounts is not necessarily anything to do with soy, but just because you wouldn't want to do that for any food, any food that you give in, in five, six, seven times a day, you're going to limit other foods, right? You're going to crowd out other nutrient sources. So we don't believe in, in giving one food, you know, four or five times a day. That's the same with soy, but not because soy is not healthful. Yeah. Variety is key for so many different reasons. And you mentioned choline, lysine, and some other nutrients. What are some of the other nutrients that plant-based parents need to be thinking about? 
So when it comes to all children, we really want to be focused on a few things, right? We want to ensure adequate calories in the diet, fat, protein. We kind of talked about a little bit, but then dealing down on some of the micronutrients, we want to ensure that all children, regardless of diet, have enough iron. Iron is the most common iron uh, anemia uh, when it comes to nutrition. And that's again, for plant-based or for omnivore children. So we talk so much about iron, but we'd be doing this even if we were talking about kids who eat meat. So iron is found abundantly actually in a plant-based diet, especially in things like legumes and nuts, whole grains. But the problem is, is because iron in plant foods is considered a little bit less bioavailable because it's a non-heme form. We tend to get around this by offering sprouted grain products when we can. So buying things like sprouted bread or sprouted pasta is going to make the iron and zinc more bioavailable, but then also pairing iron-rich foods with the source of vitamin C. So adding vitamin C is going to make the non-heme iron more absorbable. It's going to increase absorption by about three to six times. And that's really going to keep it on par with the iron that you get from animal-based foods. So we sort of think of this as as not not a big issue uh, once you sort of correct for those things and focus on that. Other nutrients for plant-based kids specifically is you want to ensure they have a source of B12. We kind of think that B12 is a non-negotiable when it comes to plant-based, but even vegetarian, you know, predominantly plant-based diets, there's a, there's a you know, seeing a, a need for additional supplementation. Whitney and I really like to focus on supplementation rather than fortified foods. And the reason is because a child's diet, especially can vary so much throughout the day. You know, your child might be really into that fortified nutritional yeast one day and the next day they don't want to touch it. And if that's your only source of B12, then you may not be getting enough if that child's not eating enough of that food day to day. So we prefer just to to be a little bit safer and, and go a supplementation route. The other two things that we recommend supplementing routinely for plant-based kids are vitamin D and iodine. And the main reason for this is that other children, omnivorous children are typically getting this from cow's milk, which is fortified with vitamin D and uh, high in iodine due to the iodine-based cleaning solutions that are used in dairy production. So that also highlights the fact that most diets are supplemented. All, all diets are supplemented really, but those are the ones that plant-based kids really need. And we do a deep dive into supplements in our book. We even have a little tear out sheet where you can fill in the blanks and figure out exactly your perfect supplement routine, because it will be a little individualized based on your child's specific needs. And then we also have a free supplement guide that parents can download on our website. Yeah, I'll also I've point out that. Sorry. Oh, good. No, no, sorry. I'm just gonna say I also point out because I think sometimes people hear these things and they're like, oh, all these supplements you have to give to plant-based kids. You know, if you're an omnivore child and the only source of vitamin D, which is true for a lot of kids, is cow's milk. Well, one cup contains about 25% of the RDA. So you need, you know, two, three, depending on the age, maybe four cups of milk. And no one would recommend that much milk because A, it's going to displace, displace other nutrients. And also we know that the, one of the most common causes of iron deficiency anemia as kids is actually too much milk because of the calcium. And so, you know, you, you likely need to supplement with vitamin D, even if your child is drinking a vitamin D milk from cow's milk. So, you know, it's, it's also supplemented. It, <laughs> right, right, right. We just think this this conversation around supplementation and, and whether it's natural or not is just, it's really silly, especially when we see so many of the benefits that come from eating a more plant-predominant light, uh, diet. And so really besides B12 and possibly iodine too, the others are really something that you would be needing to do anyways in, a, in an omnivore diet. Yeah. And like you said, the omnivore diet doesn't naturally come with all of these. It's just that those foods have already been fortified. Exactly. Yeah. 
there really isn't a natural anymore. We don't live in a natural world anymore. We live in a modern world. So we think the natural conversation is is pretty irrelevant. (laughs) I want to ask about plant-based milks because when children are, so well, some, everybody's different with their preferences for breastfeeding, but if somebody breastfed or if the baby was on formula and they're switching, a lot of times they'll, it says switch to cow's milk. But if you're not doing cow's milk, what are some really great plant-based milk options? Cause there are so many out there. Yeah. So when a baby stops getting their nutrition from breast milk or formula, we recommend switching over to a fortified unsweetened soy or pea milk. And the American Academy of Pediatrics classifies soy as nutritionally equivalent to cow's milk. It has a similar amount of protein and fat. And if you buy a fortified product, it will also have a similar amount of vitamin D and calcium. And one of the main reasons that we really push for parents to include these milk alternatives is for that calcium. Dairy tends to be the main source of calcium in most diets for kids, while plants have are abundantly full of calcium. A lot of the plants that contain calcium are not always the ones that your toddler is going to want to eat. So while I can meet my calcium needs by having broccoli and beans and other cruciferous vegetables, my son is, is not always willing to eat those things. So it's a lot more reliable for me to ensure that he's getting his calcium from fortified plant milk and the bioavailability of the, of the calcium found in plant milk, which is actually just derived from, from minerals in the earth has the same absorption rate as the calcium that's found in dairy. Okay. And We're talking about food. If they're hungry, just let them eat until they're full. But what about liquid? Because I noticed my son is always like he gets so excited to drink water or drink soy milk or anything. And I find myself trying or wanting to limit the amount of liquid because it seems like he's just drinking for fun. Yeah. So when it comes to plant-based milk specifically, we we do want to limit the amount. And that's again, because just like a similar option would be with cow's milk, we don't want to have too much of that calcium iron interference when it comes to absorption. So if your child is drinking, you know, three, four cups of a fortified plant milk, they're likely going to displace other nutrients that we want them to get from solid foods. So we sort of say about 16 ounces, and that's aligned to with what the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends for either a cow's milk or a soy milk. So sort of limiting around two cups a day. When it comes to water, kids need water, right? So we definitely want to ensure that our kids are well hydrated, especially plant-based children, because their diets tend to be a little bit higher in fiber. And especially with constipation issues, we need to ensure that our kids are well hydrated to sort of help uh, digest and process all that fiber. That said, if you notice that your child is not eating as much, that their appetite has decreased, you can wait to offer water until, you know, sort of towards the end of the meal. And, you know, I like to offer water abundantly throughout the day between mealtimes and snacks. And then if I notice my child is filling up a lot on liquids, my daughter does this sometimes, then I will sort of wait to, to give her that until she's eaten enough solid food. And then I will bring out her cup and offer it that way. We also prefer to offer the the fortified unsweetened soy or pea milk as a snack. Um, mm-hmm. That way, like Alex said, you're not having these calcium rich, um, just to backtrack for anyone who doesn't understand calcium and iron compete for absorption in the body. So if there's too much calcium, um, specifically from fortified products, you're not going to get the absorption from the iron. So we like to keep our calcium rich fortified products at snack time. Therefore, we can maximize the iron intake at meal times. What are some other snack ideas? Our favorite snack is really is a piece of fruit and then that fortified milk. And that way we're kind of knocking off all three of the categories on the, well, 
two of the categories on the PV3 plate. We've got our soy, which falls in the legumes category, and then we've got some sort of fruit or vegetable. Another good benefit of pairing those two specifically, let's say if you have a carotenoid rich fruit, like a mango, or if you're serving some carrot sticks, that fat that's in the milk is going to help absorb some of the vitamin A that's in those, in those fruits and veggies. Yeah. My, my toddler, we do a lot of hummus. We do a lot of edamame for a snack. We do like banana and peanut butter. You know, I think one thing that I like to to talk about too sometimes with parents is we sometimes have these preconceived notions of what these meals need to be, but it doesn't have to be that way. You know, if your child's snack is their leftovers from lunch, great. You know, it doesn't have to be necessarily snack food. My my kids will eat like a bowl of oatmeal a lot for, for snack or even for dinner sometimes just because that's considered to be a quote unquote breakfast food does not mean that you can't serve it other times during the day. So if you're feeling stressed or pressured about like, ah, what do I offer now? Whatever your child likes, you know, that, that same PB3 plate in a smaller version can help when it comes to snack pairing or planning. One thing I do want to say on snacks though, is that kind of going back to that structure versus restriction, we want to prevent grazing as much as possible, right? And that's because we want our kids to be able to, when mealtime is offered, to sit down and be hungry, to be ready for it. A lot of times when we talk to parents or clients and we get, you know, drilling down to like, oh, you know, your child's not eating dinner at night. A lot of times it's because they've sort of been grazing all afternoon or that afternoon snack was too big. And now sort of that more nutritious dinner option isn't getting eaten. So if you notice that's the case, We'd recommend either offering a different thing for a snack, maybe something a little bit more nutritious that you do want them to eat when they're hungry or dialing it back, limiting the grazing, and then allowing them to really come to the table for dinner ready to eat. Depending on when their nap times fall, sometimes that might mean not having that late afternoon snack. Mm-hmm. If it's coming, if it's getting too close to dinner, I was finding with my son, Caleb, he was skipping dinner every night. Uh, and I realized it was because he was waking up so late from his nap that he was then eating his snack so late that it was just bumping up against dinner time. So we started either offering just the milk or something a lot smaller or skipping it all together if it was too late in the day. And so that's kind of where that individualized approach can mm-hmm. come into come into play. But generally, Alex and I recommend three three structured main meals and and about two two snacks a day. And what about smoothies? Yeah. Smoothies are fantastic. We we tend to do a lot of smoothies in my house. One, it's one of the few ways my children really like some of those leafy greens. You know, my, my son doesn't necessarily go crazy for kale, but he loves ripping the kale and putting it in the smoothie. So great. That's the way that we eat it. It's also a great way to add in healthy fats. So different kinds of nut butters. We like to add in chia seeds, hemp seeds, flax seeds to our, our smoothies. It's also a great way to use that base of a fortified, you know, pea or soy milk. One thing I will say is you hear a lot, especially sometimes in the baby led weaning community, this idea that smoothies are not a good option because they don't have the same texture as whole foods or they sort of hide the, the foods from kids. So, so two things on that is one, as long as you're offering other types of foods, you don't have to worry about smoothies being a, a smooth texture, right? Puree is a texture too. So as long as your children are not having texture issues or able to sort of eat other foods without any problem, we don't worry at all about sort of the texture differentiation in smoothies. And the other thing I will say is that it is one thing to hide food and be sneaky about it, right? We don't want to trick our kids. So tricking our kids would be something like, I'm going to serve them purple smoothie that secretly has lots of you know spinach in it, he, 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 and then I give it to them. And they take a sip and I say, aha, you do like it. There's spinach in that. That's really tricky, 
right? And that kind of feels like, oh, you didn't tell me. Now I can't trust you with what kind of foods you're serving to me. Instead, if we can say, hey, I made a smoothie. Look how purple it is. It's got blueberries in it. It's got spinach in it. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're hiding the foods from our kids. We're letting them know ahead of time so they can trust and say, okay, wow, this is purple. You know, it's it doesn't need to be this, this tricky thing. So we don't like hiding, tricking foods, but smoothies are not necessarily doing that. And they're a really great way to get a lot of nutrition in. And this applies across the board to other things too. While you're working to get your kid to actually eat a piece of lettuce or actually eat a stalk of broccoli, it's perfectly acceptable to use other methods to get these fruits and vegetables or whatever else you want them to eat into their diet, provided you're not tricking them. So, you know, other things we do, we like to blend carrots or bell peppers into marinara to get some of those great, um, again, the carotenoids, that's the great way to get those into the sauce. So as long as you're not being sneaky about it and you're being upfront. Well, we are out of time and I could talk to you guys forever about this. Where can people find you and where can people get your book? We're plant-based juniors across all social platforms. Our website is plantbasedjuniors.com. You can find the book at plantbasedbabyandtoddler.com and at all major retailers. Yeah. If, if any of this piqued your interest and you're like, okay, I want to learn more about structure versus restriction or about specific nutrients, or even like, Hey, I want more sort of, you know, family friendly recipe ideas. Our book is really designed for everyone. You know, we, we wrote it for those who are strict vegans. We also wrote it for parents who were like, Hey, I'm a flexitarian myself. And I just don't want my kids to have the same aversion to vegetables. Like I did for the past 20, 30 years, or whatever the individual case may be. There really is something in here for for everyone. So we we hope that you that you grab it, that you enjoy it. It's really the book that Whitney and I were searching for a few years ago when we were pregnant and just couldn't find it out there. So we wrote it. Yeah, thank you. It's beautifully written and really easy to understand. And I think that so many, so many people are gonna get a benefit out of this book. Thank you so much, Sonia. It was a pleasure. Yes, yeah, so nice talking to you. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Make sure that you check out the plant-based juniors and get access to their free resources and pick up their new book. Their new book is absolutely incredible. I went on their Instagram live to talk about it because I was so impressed with the information in it. I'm here to support you guys as part of my community. I am so thankful for your attention and that you are listening to the show. If there's anything that I can do better, if there's anything that you want to learn about or how I can help you, just shoot me an email. Let me know. I respond to every single one of them. And I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day.